Welcome to Mind Things, a podcast about how psychedelics will change your brain and change the world. My name is Trey, and I'm going to be talking to people in the psychedelic space. Entrepreneurs, writers, investors, researchers, and people who have had profound experiences using these substances. My guest today is Dylan Bainan. Dylan is the founder and CEO of MindBloom, a New York City-based mental health and well-being startup, helping people expand their human potential with clinician-prescribed, guided psychedelic medicine experiences. There, he is partnering with clinicians, technologists, researchers, and patients to increase access to science-backed treatments, starting by reducing the cost of ketamine therapy for depression and anxiety by over 65%. Dylan is a 10-year psychedelic medicine patient and a three-time tech entrepreneur with both $100 million plus in funding and an exit in his prior startups, which were focused on increasing access to justice and democracy. My intro for this episode is going to be a bit different and a lot longer than usual. I've actually been a patient of MindBloom, and I wanted to first share a little bit about my experience prior to jumping into the interview with Dylan. I have pretty bad anxiety that I never realized was anxiety until the last few years. I've always been a type A person, and I just thought the things that I was experiencing were the characteristics of being a type A person. It was only after researching more on anxiety and psychedelic therapy that I realized that number one, I definitely have anxiety, and number two, I was actually a really good candidate for something like mind bloom. I've never taken any traditional anxiety medication, and it's something I've definitely avoided. I don't want to start any drug or medication that I'd have to continue taking the rest of my life, or even for an extended period of time. And I didn't want to have to use something that felt like a crutch or a band-aid for my situation. The appeal of something like ketamine is that you can potentially just do it once or for a very short period of time and have tremendously long-lasting effects from it. So anxiety, how does that manifest itself for me? I am essentially at all times... From the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep, thinking about five different things at once. This is sometimes referred to as mind chatter. Anything that has to do with being productive, being healthy, or improving myself. It's like a constant to-do list in my head. I'm thinking about how to get the most out of each day. Eating healthy, exercising, things I have to do for work, studying a language I'm trying to learn, even recording and editing this podcast. They're all things that I'm constantly thinking about. And there's a sort of subtle anxiety and worry that's pushing me to do all of these things. Now, that's not to say that I always do the things that I plan to do. More often than not, I actually don't. And that further exacerbates my anxiety. I do something called catastrophizing, which essentially means that if one little thing goes wrong, if I fail to do one of these things constantly swirling around in my head, I make it out to be worst case scenario. I have tons of guilt and I often swing my behavior in the other direction. So if I don't exercise, for example, I'm much more likely to not eat healthy and also not feel motivated to be as productive with work or personal things. I make a mountain out of a molehill. I feel terrible and and I start this domino effect of behavior. I've always thought this way, but it's definitely gotten more extreme as I've gotten older. There's this concept of being a maximizer or a satisficer. A maximizer is someone who's always looking to optimize, always looking for a better result and is essentially never satisfied. A satisficer is someone who's looking for good enough and is usually happier and more content than a maximizer. I'm definitely a maximizer, and I struggle with it because I attribute my drive and ambition to that, 
I'm never satisfied. I'm always wanting to improve my situation and I always feel like I'm not doing enough. So there are times when I wish I was just happier, but I wonder if there would be a cost to that. Like, is it possible to be extremely motivated and driven, but also be very much at peace and content with your life? I think the answer to that is yes, but I certainly haven't achieved that or anything close to that yet. You can see how this all goes hand in hand with being an anxious person. Even saying some of this stuff out loud, I think I sound like a crazy person. And frankly, the only reason I'm sharing it is because many people have encouraged me to do so. And I think if there's some chance it resonates with a listener or if people can relate directly to this, then it's worth it to share. So back to Mindbloom and why I was interested in bringing Dylan on the show. I came across Mindbloom about a year ago and saw that they were offering psychedelic assisted therapy, starting with ketamine. Now, ketamine is a drug that is used in a couple of different contexts. The main context is as an anesthetic for surgery. It's used thousands of times every single day in hospitals all over the world. It's extremely safe, and it's a desired anesthetic because it doesn't have adverse effects on your other organs, primarily your heart and lungs. It's been used as an anesthetic since 1970, 50 years ago. And at some point, doctors started to notice that when patients were coming out of the anesthetic, they were in a more euphoric state. And that led to more research and eventually the application of ketamine to treat anxiety and depression. There are ketamine clinics all over the country. Not a ton of them, but chances are if you're near a major city, there are at least a few. Many of them are actually run by anesthesiologists because they have such familiarity with the drug. So Dylan, when he started Mindbloom, saw how powerful this could be to treat those conditions, but also saw that it wasn't really being done in a modern way. These other ketamine clinics feel like clinics, like doctor's offices. And Dylan saw an opportunity to offer ketamine through telemedicine, essentially have patients take the medicine at home, but through a safe and guided experience. He was and is a tech entrepreneur and saw the opportunity to modernize the way that these treatments were offered. And that's what got me excited about learning more about the company and about being a patient myself to see how it could help me with my own anxiety. The experience itself involved talking with a guide, a coach of sorts, who takes you through your experience. They prep you for taking the medicine by walking you through how to set your intentions for the experience to create the right setting and answer any questions that you have. You typically go through four sessions total over the course of about a month. Each session lasts about an hour long. You sit in a comfortable chair or you lay in your bed, you put on an eye mask and you listen to music. They have different types of music depending on the vibe you want. It could be classical music or electronic music or your own personal preference but they encourage you to listen to music without words, just instrumentals, so that the vocals don't interrupt or impede your thoughts as you're going through the experience. You take the ketamine in sublingual tablets, these little things that are the size of Tic Tacs, and they dissolve in your mouth and are absorbed into your bloodstream. Everyone reacts differently and people require different dosages of the drug in order to have certain effects. This is something that I touch upon in the interview with Dylan. But you start to feel some of the effects about 15 to 20 minutes in, and it's really hard to explain what happens, but it's sort of a dreamlike state where your mind is very light. And ketamine, like many other psychedelics, causes different parts of your brain to interact with each other that don't normally interact with each other. So the point of setting an intention is to sort of prime your mind for what to think about, for what you want to get out of the experience. For me, it was a combination of just being less anxious in general, slowing down the mind chatter, but also to not feel so guilty whenever I miss that one thing on my never-ending to-do list. 
Some people go through the experience and have truly disassociative experiences similar to what might happen on other psychedelics like psilocybin or LSD. I never quite had that experience, but I did get a lot of benefits from going through it. I certainly still have tons of mind chatter every day, but I definitely am less hard on myself and have less guilt on a day-to-day -day basis, less catastrophizing. It's something I want to continue to experiment with in the future, and I may try other methods such as an IV infusion. Thanks for bearing with me through all of that. I thought the extra personal context might be helpful as you listen to this episode. So we'll get to the episode now with Dylan. We talk about why he started Mindbloom, his opinions on where the industry is going, if psychedelics should be legal, and what it's like to run a company with such a big and powerful mission. Dylan is a high energy guy and you can't help but be a big fan of him and what he's doing. I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's get to it. Dylan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Trey. Super pumped to chat. Yeah, same here. So I actually, I've known about Mindbloom for a while now. I think it was a little over a year ago that I first heard about it. And I've actually been a patient as well. And you and I had spoken briefly at that time. I think it, you were doing some of the initial screenings for patients, uh, I think in the early days. <laughs> that sounds uh, right. So it's good to connect here a year later. I'm excited to see how things have progressed. So maybe let's just start with a, a little bit of background on you and Mindbloom. Uh, awesome. I'm the founder and CEO at Mindbloom. I'm a three-time entrepreneur who has built a few companies that have all been deeply personal to me. Maybe you could call them like world positive companies, trying to increase access where I think people need it most. My first company was in voting and elections. It's a company called Voters Friend. We sold to a company called democracy.com, trying to increase access to local democracy maybe a little bit before it's time. <laughs> Last company, a company called Mighty that increases access to uh, social justice and financial inclusion for people who've been injured in the justice system. And this company, Mighty, where we are increasing access to uh, some pretty radically transformative behavioral healthcare treatments, psychedelic therapies. Awesome. So you kicked things off. Was it about a year ago? When did the company actually launch? I feel like I kicked off Mindbloom like 11 years ago <laughs> and have been, have been working on it since then. But I founded Mindbloom in really in around November of 2018 uh, is when I started working on it in earnest. I, at the time, had um, just left my last company, Mighty, in order to start something in mental health care. It's an area that's just like, deeply personal to me. And, and at the time, I was getting lunch with my, my good friend and personalized medicine physician. And he blew my mind when he told me that he had been working with ketamine therapy in his private practice and getting people incredible results. I had for years and years, not just been evangel evangelizing psychedelic therapy because of the impact it had made on me and my life and my personal and emotional and ontological development, but I've been following psychedelic therapy and medicine and the incredible work that MAPS and a lot of other organizations have been doing to bring it to the forefront. But I was still, my mind was blown when I learned that psychedelic therapy was actively being used by physicians and clinicians across the country through ketamine therapy. So at that time I became a patient myself and it was just as powerful as some of my other psychedelic therapy experiences. Uh, and I saw a big opportunity to help bring this to more people by increasing access, by bringing the cost down, using telemedicine to make it more affordable uh, and just try to build something really special with the, the limited talents that I have. <laughs> so what was, what was your personal experience prior to starting the company with psychedelics? 
So I grew up in uh, a family that was pretty annihilated by mental health care issues, a lot of addiction, a lot of psychosis. And in fact, my, my mother today is one of the half a million homeless people in the U.S. She lost her battle with schizophrenia and addiction. And as a working class family, we were not able to help her. Because of growing up in a, a family with a lot of addiction, I had a very strong aversion in my relationship to drugs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I never thought I would use something like psychedelics until it was June of 2009. I had a really close friend who I really trusted, who really advised me to try MDMA. I thought it would be really good for me. And I knew that I had some issues that I've come to understand or as a result from growing up in a pretty turbulent home that I think a lot of people would describe as traumatic. And when I did MDMA for the first time, it like catalyzed a fundamental transformation in how I related to like others in the world, pushed me on a path to transforming from someone who is very much a pessimist uh, to someone who could at least begin becoming an optimist and relate positively to others in the world and not just like my tribe, which is a story that you hear from a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. So it's not that unique. Over the last 11 years, I've had experiences with a lot of different psychedelic therapies, probably uh, most of the well-known ones, and they've just been a massive part of my development. Would I be who I am today with, without them? Like, undoubtedly, no. I don't think they're the end-all, be-all of like the development that I've had or that I've seen other people had. They're like a tool and a medicine and a mechanism to catalyze change and healing if you know, one puts the work in, and I put a lot of work in other areas as well, but man... I just think it's such a gift to have had access to these things and the ability and opportunity to help others access them in a way that connects the right people to the right medicines with the right doctors is I'm very grateful for it. It's very cool. That's great. So Mindbloom is starting with ketamine right now. And some of that's just due to the current regulatory and legal environment. Did you have any experience with ketamine prior to starting Mindbloom or, or was this your sort of first foray into this particular substance? So after I became a ketamine patient through my physician's practice, at that point, I was like, wow, here's a medicine that feels just as effective as other medicines I've tried. And I think there's an opportunity to use it. I actually think a couple of things have like dramatically changed over the past you know, 18 months since I thought about starting Mindbloom. Mm -hmm. And one of them was initially, I thought, wow, it's really powerful. But like you just pointed out, it's the only available prescribable psychedelic therapy. And there's this opportunity to leverage ketamine as a wedge into building the brand distribution channels, provider network, therapeutic platforms, software, such that as these other psychedelic therapies become unlocked by MAPS and Compass Pathways and Atai and a lot of other biotech and pharma companies that are bringing these to market to help change lives. We would have already built the demand and the piping for these companies. However, I think a couple of things has changed in that time period. One is after partnering with a lot of ketamine providers who've been doing this for years and hearing their stories of the transformation that they have created with their clients, two, actually digging into the clinical research around depression and anxiety and how intractable these conditions and states of being are for people and how deficient SSRIs and antidepressants are when it comes to the actual efficacy of them, both in the short and long term for people. And then three, seeing not just the clinical data on ketamine therapy and just how incredibly effective it is in um, the short term of providing rapid relief for so many people, but actually seeing at Mindbloom 
the thousands of sessions that our clinicians have done, the like life-changing results from people who have been on you know, 10 antidepressants over the past two to three years, and none of them have worked for them, who are having relief for the first time in 10, 20, 30 years. All of that has shifted my thinking into thinking that ketamine therapy alone is going to be an instrumental paradigm shift in how psychiatric treatments are provided to patients in the behavioral healthcare system and has the power to like fundamentally transform behavioral healthcare. My hypothesis is that there are like 38 million Americans on antidepressants right now and 20 million Americans on anti-anxiety meds. And in five to 10 years, we could see a totally flip where a majority of people are using ketamine therapy as a frontline treatment. And we see traditional antidepressant SSRI use plummet and ketamine therapy along with these other medicines supplant them as the leading treatment. Super exciting. You know, in, in terms of the results that you're seeing, it's obviously really powerful. There's a common phrase in psychedelic circles of set and setting. And when it comes to these ketamine clinics, they've actually been around in some form or another for about a decade. But what Mindbloom is doing, and there's a very small handful of newer companies that are coming to market that are offering clinics and patient services. And there's just a different experience. Can you talk a little bit about that contrast or I guess how you think about the mind bloom experience versus your run of the mill ketamine clinic that you might uh, happen upon that's been around for five or 10 years? Yeah, absolutely. So at Mindbloom, we think about two core focuses. So it all stems from our mission to transform lives today, to transform the world tomorrow, because maybe like you, we really believe ardently that if we're successful, we're going to accelerate the healthcare system's adoption of psychedelic therapies, make a dent in global human suffering, and potentially even like elevate humanity's collective wisdom, compassion, and consciousness. So the way that we're approaching that is twofold. One is to increase access. And the second is to just deliver exceptional, clinically efficacious and transformative experiences. The way that we're increasing access is we're really focused on how to make treatment more approachable, more affordable, and more available to people. And one of the biggest levers that we have for that is leveraging technology. One of the ways that the Mind Bloom experience differs from, I think, a lot of other experiences is that it's completely virtual and online. So we leverage a, a network of uh, partner clinicians that we're supporting who are psychiatric clinicians prescribing ketamine therapy for people who have diagnosable conditions of anxiety and depression today. And then we support those clinicians and those clients with a network of uh, coaches who are psychedelic guides who are helping support the clinicians and the patients throughout the experience. And it's all taking place on an application similar to like Calm or Headspace for psychedelic therapy. What that allows us to do is to, one, I think, make treatment a little more approachable for people who are you know, wary or apprehensive or even scared of these new treatments by creating a really clean, polished, seamless journey and in a way where they're supported from end to end by one of these guides who is their peer and by a, a psychiatric expert who also understands these medicines intimately. Two, we've dropped the price down from your average ketamine clinic, about 80%. So Mind Bloom is between $150 and $250 per session, whereas a lot of ketamine clinics today are, can be between $600 and $1,200 a session, depending on where the provider of the treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, and then third, 
ketamine clinics are naturally geographically constrained. So I think a lot about how do we get treatment to a, a single mother who's been depressed for 30 years, who's like a three and a half hour drive outside of Kansas City, Missouri. And by using a, a telemedicine-based approach, you know, we're able to rapidly increase availability to a lot of people who otherwise might not have access to that, especially depending on when your listeners listen to this, but I don't know how optimistic people are, but especially like in you know these times of COVID where people are particularly constrained in their ability to, to travel. So I think that's a big part of our how the approach is different in terms of increasing access. Uh, and other than that, we're a extremely well-capitalized venture-backed tech startup backed by some of the top investors and have a team of people who are both completely mission-obsessed with psychedelic therapy, but are also like professionals at what they do and have really dug in to build an incredibly exceptional client experience from end to end that focuses both on like the mindset like you pointed out in the and helping them craft the perfect physical setting while connecting with you know experts in the field to support them through the journey which is as an end result is creating these really like outsized clinical outcomes compared to both traditional ketamine clinics and traditional antidepressants, as well as just exceptional client experiences that leave people uplifted and in a place where they can actually create some strong behavioral changes throughout treatment. So I know that this year in 2020, there were some accelerations of the telemedicine laws that allowed you to open up your services to a number of different states in the US. I believe it's a state by state issue. Can you talk a little bit about what those changes were this year and what you're expecting over the next year or two? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a variety of different regulations at the federal and state level around the prescribing of controlled substances. One is the Ryan Hate Act, which is a federal act that prohibits the prescribing of controlled substances online. It really came about in the 90s, whereas the internet became ubiquitous, there were some you know, shady shops that were slinging pain pills on the internet, which mm -hmm. not a uh, huge externality and problem, but potentially in a little too sweeping bureaucratic fashion, we passed uh, a statute that outlawed the prescribing of all controlled substances. About 20 years later here, or it was about it was what, 2009 was when they passed this, so 11 years later, telemedicine has dramatically advanced and improved and not allowing people to access medicine remotely is a huge impediment to patient access, especially now. The federal government and state governments are following suit, have enacted some pretty critical and overdue changes to begin allowing the prescribing of controlled substances through telemedicine. And so the landscape has continued to shift both in the short and long term. And that was something we were a little bit ahead of. So talk a little bit about the, the form factor of ketamine when you're doing it virtually. Because I understand that there's several different ways that you can take ketamine and they all have pros and cons. Talk about how you guys do that right now. Yeah, absolutely. Let me just preface everything by saying I'm a tech entrepreneur and I'm a ketamine patient, a psychedelic enthusiast, but I'm not a doctor or clinician. I work with a lot of trailblazing, brilliant expert psychiatrists and clinical researchers and uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners and coaches, but I'm none of those things. <laughs> so this is my personal viewpoint. But yeah, so there are a variety of different routes of administration for how to get ketamine into your bloodstream that different providers will use. Uh, there's intravenous injection, so like into your vein. That's what predominantly is leveraged at most ketamine clinics. Uh, there's intramuscular injection, which is into the muscle. There is intranasal, which is into your intranasal cavity. Uh, there's sublingual, where you dissolve the medicine in like a tablet into your sublingual and, and buccal membranes. It's like under your tongue and in your cheeks. Uh, and then there's also oral where you swallow it. 
So the first four that I mentioned, intravenous, intramuscular, sublingual, and intranasal, they have different bioavailabilities, but they're all just loading ketamine directly into your bloodstream. Taking orally can be slightly different in that the way it's broken down in your system will also create what's called norketamine, which can be a little more sedative. So you don't see people using an oral formulation where it's swallowed as often. Subjectively, people can feel like a little groggier and more sick with longer lasting effects that aren't shown to be antidepressive. The formulation that our clinicians prescribe at MindBloom that we've partnered with are sublingual formulation. They found that that has just been a more effective and just experientially positive and pleasant route of administration for clients with the MindBloom platform. And yeah, so that's dissolved under the tongue, spit out after about five to 10 minutes, and then it's about an hour long experience where people are undergoing the height of the therapeutic effects or experience before curtailing into integration practices and the mm -hmm. afterwards in the days ahead. So talk to me a little bit about dosing. It's one of these things that it seems like it's a little bit counterintuitive where you might expect a big six foot five, 250 pound guy to need a super high dosage of ketamine versus a very you know petite person. And that's not always the case, right? Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe what you're starting to uncover with some of the data from these initial uh, sessions that you're administering? Yeah, I think a lot of protocols that we've seen will use weight as an input into an algorithm to pump out the dosage. And anecdotally, what our clinicians have seen over thousands of sessions is that in practice, there's probably a low correlation between weight or size and somebody's sensitivity to the medicine. One of the things the clinicians have been finding is that people who come in with anxiety or express a lot of anxious tendencies generally require a higher dose in order to reach the same therapeutic threshold as somebody with uh, depression or even somebody who has like some sort of mindfulness practice where they can sink into the medicine. Mm -hmm. I was recently chatting with, I believe it was Paul Austin at Third Wave, and he unprompted was telling me how Stan Groff, who's you know one of the, if not the like godfather of psychedelic therapy, had noticed that people with a neurotic personality on different sort of personality tests or profiles required higher doses of uh, LSD or other psychedelics in order to reach the same therapeutic effect. So we haven't run any any clinical studies on this yet, but it is data that we're collecting in terms of different doses for people and what the dissociative level of the experience is for them, how their uh, symptoms trend over time, potential side effects, which is really rare, in order to start piecing together, how do we figure out how to get the right dose to the right patient at the right time? In practice, what the clinicians just do is dose people really low and then titrate them up as needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that so that, it resonates with me, and that was definitely my experience. I, I probably register very high on the anxiety and neurotic spectrum. So you're, it, you're it, an entrepreneur, it, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it's definitely something where I, I kind of kept upping the dosage, but I should I should preface this by saying that it was still an extremely positive experience. But I felt like I never particularly got into a disassociative state. Maybe describe the actual experience for people that have not gone through it, what exactly happens and what they should expect from the experience. Oh, this, this is the classic, hey, describe an ineffable psychedelic experience to everybody <laughs> question. So like any um, psychedelic therapy, it, it depends on the dose and it depends on the setting and it depends on the mindset people have going in. One of the ways that I think about personally ketamine against maybe some other psychedelic therapies, assuming 
your audience is maybe sophisticated and maybe some experience around psychedelic therapies Mm -hmm. is that whereas serotonogenic psychedelics like LSD or psilocybin or even like DMT or ayahuasca to some degree enhance your senses to the point of distortion, ketamine works on your glutamate system. And whereas these other medicines like attenuate the receptors, this actually is an antagonist that sort of cuts the receptors off and it upregulates brain-derived neurotrophic factor during it, Mm -hmm. which creates the neuroplastic state. But subjectively, it feels not like your senses are being enhanced, but more like your senses are being cut off and you're like retreating into a little bit of a dream state. Depending on the dose, it can feel like very pleasant and warm, euphoric even. But for a lot of people, they'll have, especially if they've had really tough depression and anxiety for a long time, they will have freedom from ruminative thought disorders around their depression, anxiety, OCD, you know, PTSD, substance use disorder, or any other addictive behaviors or thought patterns. They'll have an elevated mood, which sometimes people haven't had in like months, years, which can be pretty surprising for people. And a lot of people will have, they could have sort of visual psychedelic effects, but that feel like more in the background than the foreground. So it could be like shapes or colors or visions, a little more dreamlike than serotonogenic psychedelic therapies. And accompanied with some of those hallucinations can be called like psychological hallucinations, insights into ways of being or insights into a client's intentions that they have set ahead of time and come in with. And so for some people, it could be very psychological, for some very physical and emotional, but the hallmarks are generally improved mood, insight, and oftentimes afterwards, uplifting and relief and motivation to take some steps forward in their own healing journey. One of the things that's really great about ketamine in a therapeutic setting is that it's relatively short-lived, right? It's about an hour and change right? The experience versus some of these other psychedelics, which may be six hours, eight hours, 12 hours. In in terms of the future of psychedelic therapy, how do you think about that as it pertains to mind bloom, just given the duration of some of these actual experiences? The way I think about the future of psychedelic therapy is just getting us increasingly effective, mind bloom and everybody else in the space at understanding how to match like the right client to the right treatment with the right professionals, with the right therapeutic content or programming, like at the right time. For some people that might mean one medicine is significantly better than the other. For others, it might mean trying a variety of different medicines, you know, that are relevant for their condition or mental state. For others, it might mean a lot of medicines sequentially and others might mean like very occasionally. One thing that I think that makes ketamine a little Unique is because it only lasts an hour and because there's very rarely, although sometimes any sort of hangover effect, especially the next day, I think it does make it a little more manageable for more frequent visitation for people who maybe have more serious like depression or anxiety they're continuing to experience. And by lifting them out of that mood, they're able to reset their emotional state while they're working on themselves. Psilocybin and MDMA generally are a little bit more like heavy hitting and I don't say one and done because a lot of them are practiced and it depends on the person, but a little more challenging to use more frequently. I think a lot of the, a lot of these uh, regulations and laws, there's a big unknown, right? I think a lot of people are hopeful that there's going to be changes and, and we're already starting to see some of that in terms of the like decrim movements that are happening in various cities around the country. 
in terms of actually running your business, how much are you trying to keep a pulse on these things? How much is that influencing your longer term strategy? Or are you just focused like completely on ketamine therapy right now? And if, you know, these opportunities present themselves down the road, it's just something that you'll be, you know, positioned to take advantage of. My philosophy is when you're building a startup, like one of the number one things that kills a startup is lack of focus. It's so challenging to do one thing, doing two or three things, like half-assing two or three things really blocks velocity. Therefore, we are, at least today, laser focused on how do we get this transformational medicine that people are currently not accessing because it's new and weird, it's super expensive, and it's only in geographic, like some urban and geographic centers. How do we make this treatment as good as possible from a clinical efficacy standpoint, a client transformation standpoint, and get it to as many people that actually need it as possible? And there's so much opportunity there to help so many people. That is really what we're laser focused on. A lot of our investors, advisors, friends have their fingers to the pulse of what's going on with all of the other clinical trials. So super excited, super enthusiastic, would love to help bring other treatments to as many people as possible. But right now we're just laser focused on how do we get ketamine therapy right. (laughs) I know at least pre-COVID and dating back to last year, you had a physical location in New York. Is that still a, a part of your strategy? Yeah. So we launched a pilot facility in New York, whereby our clinicians were treating people in person. And if they were eligible and good fits and wanted to try remote treatments afterwards, then they would be eligible to do the protocol that they got from a lot of other ketamine clinics and psychiatrists who had been treating people both in person and remotely. When COVID happened, our clinicians saw an opportunity to help dramatically increase access to the medicine by shifting to a fully virtual model, especially given their experience and expertise in ketamine therapy for years. And the fact that in the first, what was it, several hundred sessions with clients, there were no adverse events. Clients really wanted to do remote therapy and they're getting incredible like clinical outcomes, especially being able to do it at home in their own sort of a safe setting without having to travel and accessing it at a, a reasonable rate. So yeah, today Mindbloom is 100% focused on virtual psychedelic therapy because we think that is the number one way to help dramatically increase access to, this, to the people who need it most. Now you recently closed a round of funding. Uh, is that right? Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe what you plan to do in this sort of next chapter of Mindbloom? Yeah, absolutely. So we raised a, it's called a series A round of funding from some of like the top brand name VCs in the world who share our vision uh, for how psychedelic therapies can radically transform lives today and the world tomorrow, who also have deep expertise in healthcare and are very involved in a lot of the other major psychedelic therapy companies running clinical trials. What we're going to do with the money is one, continue to build out our leadership team of people who are mission obsessed and and really incredible professionals at what they do and are uh, fired up about putting all of their wisdom and compassion and creativity into bringing these medicines to the world. And two, we're going to scale our offering and our clinician network and, and coach network across the country and begin expanding into other conditions besides depression and anxiety. So again, just really focusing on how do we increase access and how do we create like the most clinically efficacious and transformative client experiences possible. What are some of those other conditions you think will come next after depression and anxiety? 
OCD, PTSD, substance use disorder. You know, there's a lot of clinical research, potentially pain. There's a lot of clinical research behind ketamine therapy to really help people who have had a variety of different mental health care challenges. One of the things that's pretty fascinating about ketamine is because it's the only psychedelic that's not a schedule one drug, completely illegal. I think we believe that there are clinicians believe that there's more research on ketamine alone in terms of like peer reviewed um, clinical studies than pretty much all other psychedelic therapies combined. That's one of the, I think, advantages that ketamine has, at least in the eyes of the call it like vanilla psychiatric community is there's just pretty like overwhelming research and data behind how efficacious it is for so many things, especially compared to existing treatment options. So there's a lot of opportunity to not just bring this to people in more areas, but to bring it to people suffering from other mental health care challenges. Do you think psychedelics in general should be legalized? <laughs> okay. So this is my, you're talking about like my viewpoint, not sure, mind yeah. blooms. Yeah. Yeah. My viewpoint is that it's pretty crystal clear that the war on drugs has been a tremendous failure. I think the data coming out of Portugal around legalization is very compelling. I think that if there were really high quality, thoughtful, intentional programs for how to support people who are suffering from addiction and there may be some sort of criteria for what should be legalized and what shouldn't, that there are probably a lot of drugs that are not legal today that would be very safe to be legalized. I think if you just look at harm reduction scales, the fact that alcohol is legal, which now I partake in a libation or two, but the fact that alcohol is legal, or even that we have 7 million kids on amphetamines every day, Adderall, but things like psilocybin, ketamine are or you know, at least ketamine is prescribable, but like psilocybin or LSD are completely illegal. It doesn't really make sense. I would agree. I guess in terms of the psychedelic industry as a whole, it seems like there's been a lot of, there's been a lot happening in the last four or five years. And there are, there are clinics like Mindbloom. There are drug and biotech companies. There's software companies. What are you most excited about outside of Mindbloom that you see happening in the industry as a whole right now? It's an obvious answer, but I just think the MDMA clinical trials are so pivotal. I mean, our science director, Dr. Casey Palios, is running the is a co-principal investigator on the MDMA clinical trials here in New York. And I'm not saying that because he's part of our team. I'm saying it because I think it's like it just stuns me that this is potentially going to happen. From the first time I experienced MDMA, and over the last 11 years, it has just been so utterly transformational to me and so like mind boggling that it's not accessible to people. And that was before I even began learning about like the clinical research behind it, like five years ago. And then it's just, it's no brainer. Not only is bringing that uh, to market for people going to change so many lives, which I, like I said, in our mission, I believe can change the world, but it's also just such a lead domino into everything else. Like if that domino falls, so much more is going to fall. So just for what it could do for the world and how long Rick Doblin and, and the incredible team at MAPS has been fighting for this and just how effective they've been at like bringing this to market and how close it is. Mm -hmm. I, I just can't, I can't imagine anything else be even close to as exciting as that. Yeah, yeah. But it seems like uh, the obvious answer. So sorry, I couldn't give you something more creative. No, not at all. It's it's getting closer and closer. And that probably is, like you said, the biggest domino to to fall. So it'll be even, exciting when even, that happens. Yeah. Even if no other dominoes fall, like that alone is going to change the world. Mm-hmm. 
So what are you, what are you most excited about with Mindbloom in particular in this next phase? You mentioned building out the team and just like scaling the operations. There's been tons of great results already so far. I imagine that's probably one of the most rewarding parts uh, of even building this company. What are you looking forward to? So you answered the obvious answer there, which is the, the yeah. client stories are like, it's like a huge cultural pillar of Mindbloom. It's something we share internally and externally is just laser focus on like the work that's being done for the clients that these incredible trailblazing clinicians that we partner with and coaches are like helping people to access. It's, there are a lot of tears shed <laughs> when we share them internally and externally. But the thing I'm, I'm most excited about, or maybe one of the things I'm most excited about is with Mindbloom, you know, not only do we have this like really awesome mission and not only do I get to feel like I'm in my Ica guy where I'm building something that like is at the cross section of what I'm really good at and what the world needs and what I love doing and what also can make money. But I also set out to really try to build an organization where we weren't just trying to innovate with the company, but we're also really trying to innovate with the company culture that we're building. And so one of the things we're doing is building uh, a more conscious company culture or what we call a, a culture of consciousness. And especially now as we're really scaling from, I think we're about 25 now to probably 200 people as of the date of this recording in early November, 2020, how we're like really putting in place this like really special culture of consciousness. Um, and it's really challenging and it's really painful, but it's a way for us to not only uh, make this big contribution that feels like our we're putting like our art and our soul like into what we're building to help people. Uh-huh. But it feels like just the act of building the company with this unique company culture is its own like avenue for like personal and for lack of a better word, like spiritual or like philosophical growth, both as individuals and as like a team. And so that's one of the things I'm, I'm most excited about. And it's something that, uh, that we're like investing a lot more in now that we're really growing and scaling the team. So I'm, I'm really curious about that. Can you give it a, a couple of specifics of what goes into building that culture in that specific way? Yeah. So there are a few values that we're really implementing. So one is a culture of fairly radical uh, transparency and uh, candor and intellectual honesty. So for instance, like we don't do one-on-ones at the company, everything we do as a team and we're constantly giving each other like both positive and constructive feedback across the team. Another is that we talk a lot and think a lot about how not just to help our clients separate from their egos, but how do we like separate ourselves from our egos while we're working and while we are having intellectually honest discussions with each other and how do we like give ourselves up to like the higher mission to transform lives in the world. Another is that we have a, a culture of pretty radical freedom and responsibility. We were like a remote first company before it was cool. COVID really took the wind <laughs> out of our like radical remote first sales. <laughs> but from founding, we've been remote first because we believe that one, we wanted to attract people from all over the country who are, you know, incredibly fired up and passionate about this and they want to limit where we're hiring from, but two, want to create a culture where people were able to go into really deep work on their own, have a lot of freedom and responsibility to make their own decisions and not have a lot of oversight. That's something that I think we're seeing a lot of pretty innovative company cultures, even if they're controversial, like Netflix and Bridgewater. And actually, like right now at the company, everybody is reading 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, which is this incredible book by the, um, these people, the Conscious uh, Leadership Group. And 
it's just this really interesting cross section of how do you bring awareness and consciousness and wholeness to actually building that really high performing organization. Mm -hmm. And so we think that there's something special here that is elevating us from a really machine oriented input output, put on a mask when you come to work and your work avatar sort of culture to one that is a little more integrated and whole and aware and honest in a way that's really uncomfortable for a lot of people. And it's probably pretty magnetic in terms of it attracts some people and like repels most, (laughs) but we feel like it's a big avenue for our own personal growth in addition to how we're growing the company. There's an entire part two to this podcast that I want to do at some point on diving even deeper to all those cultural uh, norms that you have. I think it's great. I know you got to jump. Thanks so much for for spending the time. Anything you want to leave uh, the audience with in terms of where they can find you and, and find out more about MindBloom? Yeah, MindBloom is at mindbloom.co. I don't have social media, which I get away with as a mental health care entrepreneur, one of the fringe <laughs> benefits. And but yeah, we're really open. So if you want to uh, hit me up, I'm at dylan at mindbloom.co and would love to hear from you. Thanks so much, Dylan. Absolutely. Thanks, Trey. This was a blast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode or know of anyone who might benefit from hearing it, please subscribe and share. You can also sign up for the Mind Things newsletter at mindthings.co and find us on Twitter at mindthingsco. Thanks again and stay tuned for the next episode very soon.